Hello, and welcome to the No I in Writing podcast. My name is Chris Lodwig, and I am an independent author. My name is Christy Schroyer, and I'm a book coach. And we are here once again to prove to the world that to create in a vacuum all alone is terrible. When you're in a vacuum, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> I have questions for you. Yes, please. So I'm going to set the stage here real quick about this thing, what I did. So yeah, as do. I mentioned before, like I've been really, really iteratively writing. And it, it's I swear when I'm writing this book, like every paragraph, I'm like, oh, 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 I got to go back and change this and do that. And I've got notes all over the place to go back and mm -hmm. fix things. And at some point I was out of town. I was like, you know, I'm just going to quickly write a synopsis just so I have everything together and mm -hmm. I can see how it's actually going to play out. And so I wrote about a 10 page synopsis. It's about 5,000 words, just to tell the story as I have it in my mind now that I've iterated so much and just ignore all the chaos in my, my main document now and just kind of write it all out. And in doing that, it changed a ton of stuff about it that I, I knew was in my mind and I structured it. As I was writing it, I'm like, oh, this this transition would be good for Arlie to do and not this other character. And so as I was doing that, I was compressing timelines and, and changing things and, and making different characters pop in various ways. So that wasn't the case before I did this outline. That's fantastic. Yeah. So so the synopsis itself, did you start out kind of trying to summarize what you were working on and ended up shifting and changing things? Or did you know that the synopsis was going to help you clarify some things? Uh, the, the second, I had a bunch of stuff and I wanted to, to kind of summarize it. The good thing about synopsises and summarizing things is that you forget all the dumb stuff and you only remember the smart stuff or the interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when I tell the story as, as briefly as I can, the things that didn't make the cut are just going to go away. So that was kind of my theory starting the synopsis was that things that are stupid and I don't need will fall by the wayside. And then I'm going to plan to take that, use that to structure a new outline and take all the bits from the story and, and start plugging them into that outline rather than going going backwards so that I now throw away anything that doesn't find a home in the new outline is kind of what I plan to do. That's really good. It also seems like a way to test for causality. You know, that yep. was something that I was kind of noting as I went through, but just like, how does this decision or event impact the next decision or event. And sometimes it's easy to get lost in the weeds when you're in the text itself or in scene. And so coming back, zooming out to that synopsis really allows us to kind of see the dominoes fall in a really mm -hmm. nice way. Yeah. And in fact, not only does it allow you to see it, it actually made me do it in a way. Like, so for instance, there's a point where Arlie, who's the the AI, portable AI, like runs out of batteries. And the reason that that happens in my current draft is just because she just kind of ran out of batteries, which yeah. happens. And then I had this other scene that I really liked and I didn't really have a reason for it. I'm like, oh, you know, if I do this with Arlie, it actually would cause her to run. And so like that causality that you're talking about came out of me writing that synopsis. Uh, mm -hmm. And saying there's a big 20 page section here, another one here, and they're kind of loosely tied. But when you compress that down to like two paragraphs, you're like, oh, the causality is this. It just becomes much more crystallized. It's very it was very, very helpful. So That's really helpful. And in the, those scenes that you're talking about, 
it also helps to clarify, it seems like some relationships and, and kind of the way that your characters make decisions, because if her running out of batteries isn't an accident, if it's based on a decision, then it also allows you to flesh out kind of how those characters make decisions and what their relationship is. So it does a lot of important things at once. Yeah. And it's, I went from one day thinking that my current draft is complete chaos and nonsense to, oh, no, this is actually a story. It holds together. I just got, you know, it, it's, it was very encouraging. I'm very excited about the, the new story, the new book now. So, And I promise there will be less hiking. There's less hiking, less travel. There is still some. I got to get people uh, many hundreds of miles across uh, a very broad space, but I will I will keep it tight. Because the thing that I get from my, my readers the most is that everyone really likes how my books ramp up. Uh, but they're like, they they start kind of slow. And I'm like, oh, yeah, they do. So I'm going to try to really listen to my readers and compress the beginning and make sure that it, it it leaves the starting gates as quickly as I can this time around. So I think it's very funny that you framed me as some kind of um, anti-hiking editor. No, I wasn't actually talking to you. <laughs> I was I was talking to, to the to the the massive audience that listens to this who are nice enough to to read through the slow parts of my books to get to the fast parts of my books. Though I have had other people go, dude, I really love the hiking bits in the book. So you know, yeah, to each his own. I know when you get when you get a bunch of uh, Northwesterners in a room, you're always going to get some people who want the hiking bits. People that said, I really love the camping gear in your yes. books. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> me too I, it's like you ever put up a pup tent this one's easy so all right so you, said you, some, it. you said you yes, had some I have questions for you but before before I ask questions just because I'm interested so one thing that came out of the synopsis was some clarification of Arlie's role mm-hmm. making her more active which I think is always fantastic for me yep. and for all of the readers of your books more Arlie is always good what else did you learn from the synopsis? What's something else that kind of came out? There's two other things that were very important that I was nagging you about. I'm just like, ah, Christy, what do I do with these these two parts of the book? And and the synopsis, it became painfully obvious to me what the answer to both of those questions were uh, as a part of writing the synopsis. One of them is, what do I do with the shell? Yeah. So for those of you who've read Host, there's this thing about this shell, and, it, and it, it's kind of important. And the last bit of my book, it's kind of the bridge onto this new book, and they go and they pick up the shell, and they're going to go off to, you know, they're going off on, a, on an adventure. And it turns out that that shell in and of itself isn't all that important, but I still have it. And so what do I do with it? And I had two main options. One is that we just kind of pretty quickly leave it behind, like sort of, you know, in the first, I don't know, eighth of the book. I'm like, oh, and then they gave the shell to somebody and kept going. And I just kind of drop it, which felt kind of weird. But it allowed me to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to actually take it all the way forward. And it allowed me to see how the characters would be thinking about that that object even if at the end of the day, it doesn't fit the role that they think it does, which is kind of part of the the idea of it is it doesn't really fit the role that they think it does. And so that's like, oh, it's not important. I'm like, but they think it's important. And so mm-hmm. it allowed me to say they're going to do something that's kind of useless, but they're doing it because they don't know it's useless. I'm not giving much away by saying this. 
And so it allowed me to decide at a particular early point in the book what to do with that object and whether to bring it forward. And and that actually made it show up in, in several different scenes later in the book that made good sense to me. Uh, and it felt more natural and more real and actually made it so the setup to where that thing pays off when they get that thing to where it's going. They're like, what is it? We don't care about this. This is silly. Why did you do this? But it allows them to show the distinction between uh, where they started and where they go and how, how wrong they are about things. So it became a useful thing. So that was the first one. The second one had to do with I had in the initial drafts uh, a character named Oren Dupree, who's still uh, Dr. Oren Dupree is still a main character of the book. And he was actually where I started the book. And he had this role in this personality. And then as I developed the book, Kavi goes in one direction, like physically, like him and Avelina, who are the two main characters, they kind of split up. They each needed kind of a guide to show them around where they were. And Oren stuck with Kavi. And then this other character that sort of showed up out of nowhere named Piers was showing Avelina around. And I'm like, they're kind of playing a similar role. And they're kind of aligned to different parts of the story, one being technical and one being natural or something. They have different things. But in a lot of ways, they serve very similar purposes. And I'm like, do I have two characters or do I have one? And I've really been struggling with that. And doing the synopsis uh, allowed me to say they are, in fact, a single character. Mm -hmm. I don't need the other character. I mean, he's still in the book. Piers is still in the book, but he's a very, very, very minor character. And by looking at the two situations that these two characters were in and being able to think about them literally just changing the name of the synopsis and reading it. I'm like, Oh, it brought up different tensions. It brought up the fact that, that one's gone left and one's gone right. And there's one person instead of two and one person who has visibility into both of those things adds some irony and some tension that wasn't there before. And so again, it was very clarifying to me. And so moving to having that be a single person was a really good structural choice. For lots of, of reasons. And again, you helped me. You you wrote a single sentence back. What was it? Do you remember? Um, I don't remember, but you said, do I need both of these characters or are they the same person? And I said, I have not read your synopsis yet, but I think they're the same person. I, you said something to the effect of, if you have to ask, they're the same person. <laughs> so this, is, like, this is uh, reading the book coaching tea leaves. Yeah, it was like a no-brainer to Christy. She's like, if you have to ask, you know, it's it, it it almost sounded like this question, like, Christy, I've got a boring scene. Should I leave it in? And you're like, no, I don't know what it is. But if you know it's boring, the answer is no. The answer is no. <laughs> and so that put me definitely in the mood of looking at that and saying, are they the same person or not? And then when I I wrote, like I said, the synopsis and just swapped the names out and read it again, it gave me a lot of good uh, meaty ideas to add to flesh the story out. And so it was definitely the right thing to do. I'll miss Piers. He was a very different character in my mind. And by the way, this mm -hmm. happens to you. Uh, Oren Dupree is, is a black man with like really tight, nice dreadlocks. And he's, you know, glasses wearing intellectual dude. And Piers is kind of, I don't know, I imagine him kind of like Ken from the Barbie movie, you know. Mm -hmm. And so they're very physically different people. And they're playing these different roles and to say, no, I'm going to wipe that from my mind. And suddenly this mm -hmm. this sort of intellectual uh, African, I won't say American because he's not 
it's not really America, but you know, African American man is is now taking the role of Ken from Barbie and like replacing him is, is a difficult thing to do in my mind when I know these characters. Mm-hmm. But but it's it was a remarkably easy thing to do at the end of the day. And then I think what's interesting is when I read the synopsis, then there's a lot of ambiguity about Oren's motivations yep. as you're and reading that, through. And yep. the, the ambiguity is really interesting because he is chatting with these, he, he's involved with two characters who mean a lot to us. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> there's a complexity, I think, in that relationship that wouldn't be there if they were just doing their own thing. Yeah. And it, so exactly I really right. appreciate that. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. And so that was fun. It was it was very helpful. So thank you for humoring me when I wrote you on some Tuesday. and was like, hey, I wrote 5000 words. Can you read it real quick and get back to me? It was like, that was a jerk move. But it wasn't a jerk move. You know what? If we hadn't been visited by the trials of Job. <laughs> not really. I don't really mean it. The Catholic in me is like, oh, no, you're complaining about small things. You're going to be struck by lightning. Oh, um, isn't it so weird? Like, you know, well, the thing I always try to tell, tell my daughter is that misery is not a competition. No. So this is, this is the, oh, those things suck. It's like, yeah, it sucks for everybody. Bad things and small things, they all suck. So yeah, you're not complaining about something. Being a parent is always hard. Being a parent is hard. It's always complicated and uh, morally ambiguous, like stories. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is what I want you to sort out for me. But we have the system in the grove. And so when Kavi reactivates the system, it's bringing to life something called the dead hand. Yes? Ah, yes, the dead hand. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit more about why that exists, like what its original purpose is, and how much Strickland knows about it? Like how much knowledge is there? I'm not quite sure how much Strickland knows about it yet. But first off, the dead hand is a real thing. It's a, a the, during uh, the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union came up with a doomsday device. So the the dead hand is the idea that um, like a brakeman's lever, like you always hold it mm-hmm. in a train. And if you ever die or pass out, then the brakes go on. The dead hand is the oh. idea that if no one is keeping the nuclear weapons from going off, the nuclear weapons go off. So if there's ever a first strike, we take out Russia. They're going to destroy the entire world. So that exists. I feel like I should have known that, but and now I do, and I'm just even more yeah. terrified. Dread upon dread. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and so the the reason that I don't know how spoiler spoilery this is, mm-hmm. but um, that I do have some sections. The thing that's not in that synopsis anywhere is all the background stuff. You know how I tend to have the system says this and this happens yeah. and there's some notes back and forth to kind of give context in the past. That's not in anywhere in the synopsis because I thought it would be better to not have that in there and then fill those things in later. But there is some stuff that's from the, the system about the dead hand. And what happened was in the first book when they talk about the old weapons – they're talking about the nuclear weapons. Specifically, these ones are uh, not thermonuclear, like hydrogen bombs. They are neutron bombs. Neutron bombs, when they explode, the radiation dissipates very quickly. Okay. And so that's useful. So the when the world realized how stupid it was to have the dead hand, 
but the way it was set up, and this is a little bit fictional, is that they couldn't actually unplug it. So what they did was they put the system in charge of it, knowing that the system had the biological imperative and it could keep things going. And when the system shut itself down, it shut itself down in a way that that the dead hand is sated. And what they learn at some point in this book is if you turn the system on incorrectly, in the wrong order, bad things happen. Okay. And there's a reason that that's all set up the way that it is. But ultimately, if you ever wondered why the system was down in the nuclear bunker, that's yeah. why. That's why. Yeah. And that, so it all that, ties like, together. And I, it all ties together. Yeah. So that's what the dead hand is. And that, okay. uh, for those of you who are paying attention to how st- story structure works, that's one of the about three or four ticking time bombs that I have built into this book now. So, And that one's kind of been in there the whole time. And so... Kavi thinks that he has the world's best interest and so he's going to go turn on the system. Yep. I'm just getting in spoiler place right now. How much does... But, but, but don't say why. He's got three good reasons why he thinks it's the right thing to do. Okay. And there's reasons so, why it's not the right thing to do. And I love the that, tension that between Kavi and Avelina, too. Beautiful. Yep. yep. Excited about no, that. You there's know I love... There's also some sexual tension there. And also good. Yep. There's yeah, sexual... Also an excellent kind of tension. All kinds yep. of tension are good. There's a reason we like that one. Yep. Um, it's a fun one. And some of the other things that I thought was very fun about this that isn't in the synopsis, but there's – so they go out to Prower. And Prower, of course, in the same way that Seal Tooth and the host uh, – or, or in Host was based on uh, the mind of Lem. It's like basically grew out of him. Prower grew out of Aaron. And so they're very, very different culturally. And if you remember, Lem is sort of suppressed and whatever, and uh, and Aaron wasn't. And so her yeah. whole culture that grew out of her is a very has very different mores mm-hmm. than uh, the Lemist culture. And so that's kind of fun to take a bunch of people from one and throw them into the other and see what happens. Yeah, less repression, much less more fun, more, <laughs> like, more fun times. More more fun times. More and, fun and, times in the woods. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, of course, Kavi and Amelie are very put out by that because they don't yeah. really know know how to deal with, with the attention that they get and, and stuff. So okay. it's kind of – it's it's almost like comic relief a little bit. But. Okay. There is also, as you get to the end, you have kind of a, a linking between Avelina and Aaron and Lem and Kavi. Yep. yep. Which is really interesting because then they can kind of play out kind of some of the psychic dramas or replay them in different ways. Yep. Which kind of it kind of reminds me of like I don't know conversations in high school philosophy of of infinite return, right? Like what happens if you keep looping? Yeah. And the and what needs regression. to change? Yeah. It has. I mean, it has kind of a um a Groundhog's Day kind of feeling to it in a really satisfying way. No, it's good. I'm I'm glad. I've been trying to figure out how to sort of mirror those two initial characters into these final characters of the series. And I think I figured out how to do it in a way that I'm I'm excited about. So so that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the psychology of that. Because I think the question that I have as both an editor and a and a fan and a reader is um how that relationship can play itself out differently. Like what are the other possibilities? And I think that's really exciting to kind of figure out. Yeah. Uh, you and I will need to talk about that a little bit more because right now 
all I can think is the word tragedy, which <laughs> be the, you know. So the the way I look at it is there's a lot of the past that is bleeding into the consciousness of the future and it leads to like misreads and yep. and desires that are of unknown origins or un unexplicable origins. It's almost mm-hmm. like those characters become the the uh the id or the yeah. subconscious of of the modern characters in this very almost literal sort of way yeah. and definitely in a figurative sort of way. And so it's like this this undercurrent of psychology of those you know which which I think is just about how culture works as well, yeah. whether it's literal, there's a lattice involved like in, in the sci-fi books that I write, or whether it's how much does George Washington's psychology manifest itself in my life today? Like that. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that going on too. So yeah, the kind of invisible meshes that compel us in ways that we're not aware of. Yeah. Uh, another word for a mesh is a lattice. Yeah, I mean, That's literally where I came up with that word because <laughs> it was originally mesh in uh, systemic, and I changed it to lattice. To lattice, like yeah. Word. I but, like lattice because uh, it feels like it has more gardening implications. Yeah, absolutely, and it seems like it's like a trellis, in other words, like a trellis. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a nice Anyways, I'm I'm really interested to see how that plays out because. It, it does have the makings of a great tragedy is that people who are trying to do their best with the information that they have and that information is partial <laughs> yeah, and limited and they can only do so much. And so I feel like that really speaks to what feels like the human experience of working mm-hmm. in the dark and feeling your way forward and not really knowing if the decisions that you make are going to help or hinder. So It'd be really interesting. So by the way, your questions are great and they're very helpful. And as you're poking at it, I still have a lot of, of ideas that are coming to mind. They're settling down a little bit, but I feel like a lot of new possibilities are opened up by the questions that you're asking and, and things. So I'm kind of excited about it. I'm really excited by the story idea. I'm really excited to see how everything comes together. I think it'll be a lot of fun to keep talking about it. Anything else? I don't think so. Just uh, excited for the new year. I'm excited to be talking again. Yeah, absolutely. The last couple of months have been hard for us to get together. I'm glad that we've got two episodes being recorded in two days. That's kind of fun. It is fun. Uh, and I think we got some some other fun ideas uh, bouncing around, too. And by the way, if anybody ever wants to give us ideas for episodes, we, we'd love to hear what those ideas are. And if you think you have a good reason to be on the show, that's fine. You reach out to us. You give us your pitch. We'll see what we can do. That I think that's fair? a lot of fun. Yeah. If, if you haven't picked up on it, we both like talking. So we had uh, something else that we've done that we hadn't done in many, many years is we had a family Christmas party the other day, which we haven't done because of COVID and, and our grandma died a couple of years back. And so it's been kind of weird to get together. We had uh, Christy's brother-in-law uh, owns, owns a winery. We went out. It was a great thing. It was a lot, a lot, a lot of fun. And there was a couple spouses, uh, my my wife being one of them. Uh, and our cousin Griffin's uh, wife as well. Like they're just kind of introverts, and watching those poor introverts suffer through a Scheuer family event, it's got to be so hard to just be around, you know, your dad and me and Rogan, like just being loud and yelling and doing the things that we do, and being an introvert in that chaos must be so hard. So. Yeah. Well, I I identify as an introvert in the chaos and. 
but I also grew up with the chaos, so it's a little different. <laughs> it's it's, <really laughs> it's extremely you know familiar funny? chaos. <laughs> I think that a lot of our kids, they're all introverts. They all are just really chill, and then there's like me and Terry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's got to be tough for all those folks to be around, you know, Beth. I do think a lot of it, though, is the way that we grew up. I always think of everybody as cousins. Like, yeah, I always yeah, think yeah. of all of our kids as cousins, but it's true that they don't see all of our kids as much as we saw each other growing up. I think Ems and I were kind of like the youngest of like the older group. Yeah. yeah and true. so we really grew up looking up to you guys and being pretty intimidated and scared, but also trailing after you all of the time. And so we were very. You ever looked up to me is so funny. It seemed much older when I was a a small child. Well, as a percentage, that was true. Yes. You know, there was a time when I was like six times older than you when you were one and I was six. So. And there was a lot of uh, performances going on that I found both inspiring and also intimidating. Probably the most famous one, family famous, was um, Toby being Jesus on the cross for a uh, nativity. (laughs) <laughs> you know that that that's the wrong holiday right like they didn't just take him right out of the mom and put him on a cross was, that's not how it that was works. just as i just was so starstruck it was it was a beautiful performance <laughs> but yes i mean wrong holiday but yeah it's like he you could know, command a room swing, swing for the lights man like just go for it <laughs> so anyway that was a very fun thing, and I do I sympathize with the introverts you get introduced into our family. That's the the point of it. And the two of us do like to talk. We do like to talk. Sometimes yeah. introverts like to talk. I just only like to talk to one person at a time. You know, I found out my ideal number of people to talk to is three. Oh. Just being able to play off that three way thing, I just think is the, is the ideal one. When I go out with my buddies, I like there to be three of us. Huh. Three is the magic number. Three is a crowd, and I like that crowd. Well, you like a crowd, like my father. I, I do. I am very much like your father. Yes. Thank you once again for listening to the No Eye in Writing podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Christy. And we'd like to encourage you to reach out to your friends, reach out to your families, reach out to your local podcast, and try to sucker them into collaborating with you on your work. It will be better for it. So Go have fun collaborating in 2024.